Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 36. The Dutch. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. Should you want to support the show, why not consider signing up for membership? You can do that by going to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button to subscribe for only $5 per month. Special thanks to our newest pioneer, listener Wesley. Thanks, I couldn't do the show without you. I want to begin this week with a pronunciation correction-ish, because it's not quite pronunciation, but it sort of is. Anyway, I've heard from a lot of people saying that I got the name of the bay that Rhode Island was built on wrong last week. It should be Narragansett's. Which is oddly what I thought I was saying, but apparently I was saying Nagarensit. Which is really weird, because I've had so many people message me saying Nagarensit, and my first reaction was, wait, wasn't that what I was saying in the first place? But apparently I wasn't, so my apologies, it is Nagarensit Bay. Now that we have that dealt with, on to the episode. If the 16th century colonial world was defined by the Hispano-Portuguese expansion into New Spain and South America, the 17th century was when European attention turned towards North America. The English, forever living on the fringes of Europe, threw themselves into the adventure and managed to set up two colonial groups, one centred upon tobacco growing around the Chesapeake, and one with an eye towards fishing in Massachusetts Bay. But they were mostly concerned with internal affairs, matters of religion, matters of voting, matters of securing food. As time passed, they began to develop into actual settlements with characters of their own. Their field of vision began to expand. They felt more secure and abler to see what was going on beyond the horizon. What they found was that they were not alone. Just as important to the history of the United States are the other groups of European settlements popping up. The nucleus of New France was forming along the St. Lawrence. But our attention for Chapter 3 of A History of the United States is located further south, along the Atlantic seaboard. We now turn to what was happening along the Delaware and Hudson Rivers. A complicated, heterogeneous network of colonies was forming, made up of Finns, Swedes, Flemings, Frisians, Holsteiners, Danes, Germans, French Huguenots, and most importantly, the Dutch. Okay. Let's back up a bit. And when I say a bit, what I mean is a lot. The Low Countries, the lands which would become the modern Belgium, Netherlands and Luxembourg, have a rather complicated past. They first appear in the historical record as on the frontier of the Roman Empire, forming part of the Roman province of Belgica. When the Roman Empire collapsed, it became dominated by a tribal group known as the Frisians, but the Franks always held a strong position, and it was soon absorbed into the Frankish Empire of Charlemagne. 
The empire did not long outlive Charlemagne. It broke into pieces. Broadly speaking, the western half became medieval France, and the eastern half became the Holy Roman Empire. Which is nothing at all like a traditional empire. It was more a collection of quasi-independent states, who collectively elected an emperor with some power over the whole group, such as protection. The Low Countries, as a collection of these principalities, were sucked into the Holy Roman Empire. Holland quickly became the most powerful of these principalities, but it was inevitable that a more powerful neighbour would pounce. It finally happened in the later Middle Ages, when the region was dominated by the Duchy of Burgundy, one of the more interesting lost states of Europe, which I would highly encourage you to research. The duchy was, in the wider feudal scheme, a vassal of the King of France, and would spend much of the 15th century in an ultimately doomed fight to secure independence from the French. The last Duke of Burgundy, Charles the Bold, was killed in these wars in 1477, and extinguished the duchy, but not the family line. Now, you need to pay attention here, because things are about to get complicated. Charles the Bold had a daughter named Mary, and Mary claimed the title of Duchess of Burgundy. Mary was married to Maximilian, the son of the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick III, a Habsburg of Austria. Mary died in 1482, passing the title to her four-year-old son, Philip the Handsome, who became the Duke of Burgundy. Fighting took place in the Low Countries about whether they would side with Charles VIII of France or Holy Roman Emperor Frederick III. Then, Frederick died, simplifying the matter. Maximilian became Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I and Archduke of Austria, and in 1493, a council of Burgundian nobles gave the position of Lord of the Netherlands to the 16-year-old Philip in a compromise. This is how control of the Netherlands passed into the hands of the Austrian Habsburgs. With me so far? Good. Okay, Spain. Spain didn't technically exist at this point. What we have is a marriage alliance between Isabella I of Castile, which controlled most of what is today Western and Central Spain, and Ferdinand II of Aragon, which controlled Eastern Spain, Sardinia, and was in the process of conquering Sicily and Naples. This pair had several children. A younger daughter would be Catherine of Aragon, who famously married Henry VIII of England, and was the mother of Queen Mary I, but we are really only interested in the oldest three, Isabella, John, and Joanna. John was the heir and married Margaret of Austria, the sister of Philip. Isabella married Manuel I of Portugal, and Joanna married Philip. John died in 1497, making Isabella the heir, 
but she died the next year while giving birth to a son who was sickly and shortly died. This made Joanna the heir to Castile, Aragon and Naples. She and Philip had a son in 1500, Charles, or as I've previously referred to him in other episodes, Carlos. Now, Isabella died in 1504, making Joanna her heir, and Philip was crowned king, but he died in 1506 to be succeeded by his son Charles. Shall we recap just where we are, because that was a lot of information. Maximilian I is Holy Roman Emperor and Archduke of Austria. Six-year-old Charles is Lord of the Netherlands, Joanna is Queen of Castile, and Ferdinand II is King of Aragon and Naples. All good, let's continue. Ferdinand II died in 1516 and was succeeded by Joanna, making her the Queen of Castile and Aragon, although these titles would never again be separated, so we might as well just call her Queen of Spain. Joanna has a very interesting life story. She likely suffered from depression and was considered mad at the time. She made Charles her co-ruler, and soon afterwards she was placed into forced confinement. While she was technically Queen of Spain until 1555, here she exits the narrative, and to all intents and purposes, Charles was now King of Spain, which also came with the rule of Southern Italy, and he was also Lord of the Netherlands. This is how the Habsburgs came to rule Spain. The Habsburgs were the dominant power in Europe, but their power was about to be concentrated. In 1519, Emperor Maximilian I had died. We've already covered this back in episode 18, Theology Cast. The three contenders for the crown were Carlos I of Spain, or Charles, as I've been calling him in this episode, Francois I of France, and Henry VIII of England. In an attempt to stop one of these gaining the position of Holy Roman Emperor, the Pope backed Frederick the Wise of Saxony, the protector of Martin Luther, allowing Martin Luther to not be killed. The Pope's efforts were not successful, and Carlos was chosen, making him Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. This added Austria and the Holy Roman Empire to his already extensive domains, which increased ever more when you factor in the conquests Spain would make in the Americas. Charles V was, by some margin, the most powerful man in the world, and his empire was the first to be given the label, the empire on which the sun never sets. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about the Netherlands. The purpose of this whole detour was to get here, where we now understand just what the Austrians and Spanish are doing in the Netherlands in the first place. It took a lot of explaining, but I found this method infinitely preferable to just starting with, so the Spanish are in the Netherlands. We are now at that point. So, the Spanish are in the Netherlands. The Dutch were okay with this, and the situation continued until far into the 16th century, but 
began to run into problems during the reign of Philip II, who ascended to the throne in 1556. He was, it's worth mentioning, also the King of England at this point, as he was married to Queen Mary, the daughter of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. If you're at this point thinking, wait, were Mary and Philip related, you would be correct. Catherine of Aragon was the younger sister of Philip's grandmother, Joanna. Just in case understanding all of this wasn't confusing enough. Anyway, what were we talking about? Oh, that's right. Why the Dutch didn't like Philip. In 1557, we have a report from a Venetian ambassador who wrote that the Dutch nobles were troubled by Philip's preference for Spain rather than the Netherlands. He adopted a Spanish lifestyle and filled his councils with Spanish and Italian advisers. I should note that there is nothing particularly strange about this. Philip did have to administer both Castile and Aragon, and it was only natural that he would have advisers from those territories to help govern them. But still, the Dutch nobility were annoyed, and Philip attempted to impose commercial regulation, which the Dutch opposed, and he also tried to force through a return to Catholicism. The Protestant Dutch were tolerant, but they did not want Catholicism forced upon them. In 1568, they started a war of independence, known as the Eighty Years' War. This conflict began with an invasion of the Netherlands by Prince William I of Orange, who raised a mercenary army augmented by Dutch irregular forces. The initial attack in 1568 was unsuccessful, as was a second in 1572, but then things began to go right. By 1573, the provinces of Holland and Zealand were captured and protected against the Spanish. By 1576, the rest of the provinces joined in open revolt, and the war for independence was well and truly on. The region fragmented during this war into the more hostile north and the more reconciliable south. The seven northern provinces broke away in 1579, and two years later declared themselves independent as the United Provinces of the Netherlands. The southern provinces, which would become Belgium, made peace as they were reconquered by the Spanish by 1588. It looked as though the independent north was about to be crushed into oblivion, but it was not to be. Spain overreached. At the same time as it was engaged against the Dutch, it was also fighting the English and French, 1588 famously being the year of the Spanish Armada. As the Spanish became distracted, it allowed the Dutch to begin a counter-offensive and establish their position. A truce was arranged in 1609, about the time that the pilgrims were arriving in the Netherlands. You'll recall one of the factors in them leaving was a worry that the war with Spain would restart, which indeed it did, as part of the Thirty Years' War. The war commenced again in 1621, with a series of early Spanish successes, but the tide reversed. The Dutch managed to secure their position, and gained an advantage 
by allying with the French, who pushed into Flanders. Eventually peace came about, and the United Provinces of the Netherlands was recognised as an independent state in the 1648 Treaty of Münster. So, that's the story of the Dutch. But I know what you're asking. This is all very interesting, but what does this have to do with the Dutch founding the New Netherlands? The answer? Everything. Since Philip the Handsome married Joanna and became King of Spain, the Netherlands were sucked into the Spanish trade network. The Habsburg Empire was the most powerful state in the world, so it is only natural that this continued under the reign of Charles. The Dutch were a sea people, they were traders. It was only natural that their ships would frequent the ports of the Iberian Peninsula. Cadiz and Lisbon were the most popular destinations, as they sold manufactured goods from northern Europe and brought back spices from the Far East, or tobacco and precious metals from the New World. It was only logical. But it was massively complicated by the war with Spain. The Spanish were not going to trade with the people they were at war with. There was still Lisbon, but in 1580 Spain annexed Portugal, and so this was no longer an option. This forced the Dutch, if they wanted to keep trading, to bypass the Iberian leg of the journey and just go directly to the New World. They started to sail directly to the islands of the Caribbean and the Far East, to trade for spices directly without the Iberian middlemen. They started to attack Spanish and Portuguese ships where they could find them. It was all very profitable, and the Dutch soon began to organise themselves, setting up the Dutch East India Company in 1602 for both trade and war. They also began to get more serious about the New World, and the Dutch East India Company contacted an Englishman by the name of Henry Hudson to go search for a sea route around America to the Far East. We'll cover that stage of Dutch involvement in the New World next time. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you can find more information about it online at thehistoryofpodcast.com. That is the place to go to sign up for membership. You can continue the conversation on social media. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, and on Twitter, at HistoryJamie. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, then please send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.